there was a man who uh, recently went to visit the Austin Zoo. He'd been going throughout the zoo with his family, and when he came to the lion cage, he was extremely surprised to see what was in there. Because when he came to the lion cage, he saw not only the lion, but he saw a monkey running around in the lion cage. And so the, the man is concerned, knowing that the monkey and the lion do not belong together. And he's, he goes to the zookeeper and says, what's, what's the deal with the monkey in there? Shouldn't somebody get him out? And the zookeeper says, no, no. You see, lions normally, uh, they, they normally live with other lions, and, and they thrive off that relationship. But since we only have one lion, we just put a monkey in there to keep him company. And the guy says, well, well does that work? I mean, do, do they get along? And the zookeeper says, yeah, most of the time. And he says, well, what do you do when they don't get along? He says, we get another monkey. <laughs> Just like the lion, human beings were, were meant to be in relationship, right? The, the poet John Donne says, man is not an island unto himself. And we can all relate to that. And, and we, don't even need, uh, we, we don't need a poet to tell us that. We can go back to Genesis, the first few pages, and we see that man was created to be in relationship. That first relationship being with God, but we're also created to be in relationship with one another. And so relationships are important, and it's important that as we build those relationships, we don't eat the monkey, right? We need to just not say, hey, this relationship's not working out, I'm, I'm leaving it, right? We want to build those relationships and invest in them in a way that honors God. Our theme for this year is, is stewardship. And so as we go through the book of Ruth, many of you may be familiar with it, uh, if you are, you're probably a woman, uh, because women love this book, because there's this big love story in it. It's like the Bible's version of the notebook, but guys, I promise, uh, there's more to it than that. And if you can make it through, then one of these days we'll go through like Judges, or you know, Exodus, and Deuteronomy, or First or and Second Samuel, and which is like the Spartacus gladiator band of brothers and Saving Private Ryan of the Bible. We'll go through those, I promise. Uh, and we'll talk about chest hair and, and power tools, all right? But um, there is so much more to the book of Ruth than just this, this single love story. There's an overarching love story that we're going to see throughout this. And it, it centers around the various relationships that we have in our life. And so as we go through Ruth, we're going to talk about how we steward our relationships. And stewardship just means... That, as you remember, we talked about in January, stewardship is um, it's, it's how we manage our resources. And so relationships are one of those resources that God has given us that we want to be good stewards of that, right? Um, the, the Carnegie Technological Institute did some research, and, and they came out with this statement. They said that 90% of people who fail in their professional lives fail because they don't have good relationships with the people that they work with and work for. Think about that. 90% of the reason people fail in their business, in their work, whatever it is they're doing, it's because they don't have those relationships. And so even on a broader picture, outside of, of thinking about, man, how do I honor God with my relationships? This is just real practical, real-life stuff that we're talking about here that we need to have relationships that are honoring God, that are moving towards God, because it benefits us and it benefits the people around us. Especially when you know that our mission statement is to go into our community and allow every man, woman, and child repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ. That is our mission. That is our vision. That is what we do as a church. That's where we're going, and that can't happen unless we have healthy relationships with the people around us. We, we talk a lot about building relationships where we live, work, and play. 
And so this morning, as we begin Ruth chapter 1, we're going we're gonna to talk about how do we build and maintain healthy relationships in, in times when life gets hard. Because let's be honest, sometimes life gets hard. Now, I'm not talking about life gets hard, you know, in the sense of I'm 13 years old and my girlfriend broke up with me. That kind of life gets hard. I'm talking when life gets really hard. Real life stuff. And I know there are, there are people out here who are facing divorce, have been through divorce. Um, maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's a, a change in job. You're facing some real-life hard decisions, some real-life hard situations. And we want to we look at what it's like to build and maintain relationships in a way that honors God, even in those difficult times. Before we do that, before we actually get into the book of Ruth, <coughs> excuse me, uh, there's a word that we've talked about quite a few times here at River Rock. It's come up a number of times. It's a major theme throughout Scripture, and it's going to be a major theme as we go through the book of Ruth. And that word is chesed, right? We've talked about this idea before. A lot of times you'll see it translated as love or loving kindness. And, and we've mentioned before that chesed, this idea, is, is so much broader than one English word uh, could, could actually translate or even even encompass in this one word, the Hebrew word hesed. And uh, just to, to remind you of what that word means, it's, um, it's a word that's always used and expressed of relationships. Okay? It's, it's not just a word like we, we use the word love, and we say, oh, I love cheeseburgers. It's like, really? Do you, do you really love cheeseburgers? Uh, if you're going to use that same word with your wife, I love my wife, it kind of loses its meaning. But this word hesed is only used of relationships, right? So it, it entails a relationship. Not only that, it's about a, uh, a covenant loyalty, that there is a bond there, that you've made a commitment and a covenant between uh, you and this person that you're expressing that hesed to. So there's a covenant loyalty. It involves faithfulness, kindness, goodness, mercy, love, and compassion. All of these things stemming from that abiding loyalty to one another. It's, in one word, it's, it's kind of a, a commitment to all of these things. As we were talking about this in the elder board, every Friday as we get together as elders, we talk about what's the message going to be about, where is it going, and, and uh, sometimes the elders say, no, you can't say that, and uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, they, they have great ideas, and they say, hey, make sure you, you hit on this, or have you thought about come, coming from this angle? And this last Friday, one of our elders said, you know, when I think about love, I'm always reminded that love is a verb, right? Love is a verb. It's an action. It's not a, it's not a thing. It's a verb. It's something you do, and that's the same as hesed. Hesed is an action, Hesed is a verb. It's, uh, it's something that's, that's done. Uh, it's, it's an act of, of kindness and compassion uh, from someone who's, who's in a stronger position towards someone who's in a weaker position, right? That's why two-thirds of the time that this word is used in Scripture, it's used of God towards mankind. So two-thirds of the time this word is used, it's used to describe God's relationship to mankind, that he's doing something in faithfulness, kindness, love, mercy, and compassion towards mankind. That's a pretty big deal. That's a really cool thing, right? But the Bible also calls us to have that kind of relationship with one another. Not just our spouse, not just our kids, not just our brothers and sisters, but with our friends, with our neighbors, with our church family. We're called to have this kind of love and commitment and faithfulness and compassion towards one another. 
And so we're going to see that as we go throughout this book. Um, I think it's, it's going to be great as we go through. Open your Bibles with me to Ruth chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1. Uh, I'm really excited about this series. Even just this past week, God has reminded me of some things uh, in my own relationships of places where he's calling me to be stronger, where he's calling me, even in those tough times, to make that commitment to follow through with him. So let's look at Ruth chapter 1. And as we go through today, there's going to be quite a bit of background that we want to get on the book. So uh, you'll forgive me if we stop every once in a while and just get some background. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled... All right, we're going to stop right there. We didn't get very far, but it's kind of... You've got to have the background. We've got, we got half of one verse. So in the days when the judges ruled... This is referring to a time uh, Israel has been brought out of Egypt by Moses... And they get to the promised land after wandering around for 40 years. And God says, Moses, you disobeyed me at one point. I can't let you into the promised land. I, but I'm going to use Joshua to lead the people. And so Joshua takes over the leadership of the people of Israel. And they go in, and there's this big conquest. God says, go in and drive out all the other nations before you. Everyone else that's in the land, kick them out because this is your land. And if they stay there, they're going to lead you astray. So Joshua is leading that charge, and the people of Israel they kind of get settled in, and they don't really follow through with what God says. So this is about 1200 BC, uh, the time when the judges ruled Israel. And the people are there. They're living in the land. They haven't driven out the people the way that God has told them to. And stuff starts to happen. There starts to be this little bit of decline in the, in the moral and spiritual life of the people of Israel. And they get further and further away from God. And so God raises up some of these other nations that he told them to get rid of. He raises them up as a way to, to judge the people of Israel. And he says, look, I, I can't let this go unpunished. I'm trying to be patient with you, but I can't let it go unpunished. And so Israel goes through times of punishment where they, they're subjected to um, people like the Canaanites, the Anam, Amorites, the Moabites, the Hittites, and they're, they're subjected to these people. And then God's people realize their sin and they cry out to God. Much the same way we saw the people of Nineveh cry out to God in Jonah. They cry out and they say, God, forgive us. Please, God, help us. We want to follow you again. And so God hears their prayer and he raises up a judge. Um, usually these judges were, were military leaders and they often served as spiritual leaders. But not always. Some of the judges were like Samson, who was a pretty poor spiritual leader, if you read his story in the book of Judges. But he was strong militarily, and he led, uh, led the people. He was one of the judges of Israel. And so you kind of have this, this downward spiral where God raises up a judge, and the people for a time say, okay, we're going to follow God. We're going to do what it takes to, to be free of these people. And then they get free, and the judge moves on, or the judge dies, and slowly they start to spiral downward again. And they, they come under some judgment, and they cry out, and God raises up another judge. But it's this continuing downward spiral. And towards the end of the book of Judges, you, you see this phrase over and over again. And there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Or everyone did as he saw fit. You'll see that phrase over and over again. Now, the important phrase there is that this is a time when there was no king in Israel. So there's no king. Saul, King David, the most famous, and King Solomon... Uh, they've not been established on the throne. So there's no king in Israel, but I believe there's more to that phrase than we often take. I don't think it's just talking about having a human sitting on the throne. Because when, when the people left Egypt, 
the understanding was that someday, you can go back to Deuteronomy, someday you will have a human king sitting over you, but even in that time, I am the Lord God. I am your king. I am your king. These are the decrees, these are the commands that I am giving you as your God and as your king. You are to be my people, and I am to be your God. I am to be your king. And so when it says there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, or everyone did what he saw fit, I think it's really talking about the fact that people had not set God apart as their king. And so it's a really dark time in the history of Israel. And the reason the book of Ruth opens within the days when the judges ruled is because this book of Ruth, what we're going to see is that the characters, the people, the historical people who lived in this time and who are, who are talked about in this book stood out. They were shining examples against a dark background of spiritual and moral decline. The people in this book stand out because of their faithfulness, because of their purity, in relationships, in every aspect of their life. And we're going to see that as we go throughout this whole book. So that's, that's why we, we want to have this background, we want to have this framework so that we understand that these people are a shining example in a very, very dark background. And, and let me just say this. Are you a shining example in your world? Jesus Christ calls us to be salt and light, Right? We face some, some dark stuff um, every day, some of us darker than others, and we want to be that shining example. Amen? Amen. Let's keep going. So in the time, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. All right, so it talks about this famine in the land, and we've already mentioned this is a time of the judges when God uh, is using other nations to, to send some judgment against Israel to kind of get their attention and draw them back to him. One of the other things that we know from Deuteronomy is that God's promises about the land were, were tied to their obedience and they were tied to the land. And he says, if you don't obey me, if you don't do what I command, then I'm going to send famine and pestilence uh, as a way to get your attention. And so we see that even here, that there's a famine in the land. Now the ironic thing is that a man from Bethlehem. Now the word Bethlehem means house of bread. And there's a famine. So you have a house of bread, but you have no food in the house of bread. Right? So names and places are really important. God is using some stuff to set a picture here. So in the house of bread, there is no food. There's no food. And this man goes with his family into the country of Moab. And we'll talk about that in just a second. The man's name was Elimelech. And his wife's name was Naomi. Again, names are important in this book. Elimelech means, my God is king. In a time when there is no king in Israel, this man's name is, my God is king. But he does something here. He, he takes his wife and his family, and he leaves God's promised land, the land that God said, if you stay in this land and obey me, then I will bless you. And he takes his family out of that land, out of God's promised place. And he moves them into the territory of his enemies. Does that sound like a man who understands that my God is king? Does that sound like a man who, who is saying, God, you are my king and I trust your provision? It's a reasonable decision, right? There's no food here. There's food in Moab. I'm going to move my family. That's a reasonable decision. But God doesn't always call us to make decisions that align with our thinking. Right? Right? 
Have you ever been there? Have you ever made a decision that you think, wow, this, this just lines up with, with all reason. I should, I should make this decision. Come to find out that it wasn't necessarily the right one. Anybody besides me been there? We, when we make decisions in our lives, we want to make decisions that honor God. We want to make decisions that honor God. And we can only do that when God is our king. And when we start by making decisions on our knees in, in his word. That's, that's a bonus for, for today. Let's keep going. So Elimelech means my God is king. He takes his family and he leaves Israel and goes into Moab. His wife's name is Naomi, which means pleasant, which we're going to get to in a little while, uh, the importance of that name. So he goes with his family <clears throat> from Bethlehem into Moab, and they're there for 10 years. They live there for 10 years, and the man, Elimelech, dies. Not only does Elimelech die, but his two sons die. After marrying two Moabite women, one named Orpah and another named Ruth, it tells us that the sons died in verse 3. Now, uh, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other Ruth. And they lived about ten years, but both, both Malon and Kilian also died. Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Okay, this is a big deal. Because men were the sole providers of the family at this time. And your sons, your children, your sons and your grandsons, who would be the ones who would go out and, and they would have property rights over the land, they would be the ones who are going out and, and uh, providing food and getting jobs. If they're not there, there's no provision, right? There's no social security. Your family is your social security, Okay. So your family is your social security, and it's that way in most places in the world today, right? You get old, you live with your family. Your family takes care of you. And so without a husband and without sons, where does that leave Naomi? She's in a tough spot. She's a stranger in a foreign land with no husband and no sons and no way to provide for herself. She's got these two daughter, daughters-in-law that she doesn't know what to do with. She's there. Her life is hard. Her life is getting hard. Let's see what happens. Verse 6, When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. So, they're there, and she hears, God has returned to Bethlehem, right? We talked about kind of that cycle. So, God has returned to the, to the nation of Israel. He's there. There's food. And Naomi says, you know what? My husband left. I didn't have a say in that decision. I didn't really want to go. I'm going back to my people. That's where God is. That's where I want to be. And so she goes back. She goes back and she brings her daughters-in-law with her. And then she turns to them as they're on their way. Verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness. As you have shown your dead and me, may the Lord grant to each of you that you will find rest in the home of another husband. So Naomi recognizes, look, um, you girls are young. There's still potential for you to get remarried. You're going to a place where you don't know anybody. This is my home. You should stay here with your family. You should stay here. There's still hope for you to, to have that kind of provision. I'm going to go back as an old widow I'll probably end up begging, but it's better to be begging in Israel than to be here in Moab. So I'm going back. You guys go home. 
Naomi's making a hard decision. Naomi's making a hard decision, and that's the first thing that we see, is that when life gets hard, love makes the hard choice. Love makes the hard choice. Naomi's making what she thinks is the right decision, and we're, we're going to see a little bit more about that in just a second. Let's keep going. Naomi knows that she has no way to provide for these women. If they're to go into Israel, uh, the, the Israelites know the law. God says, even to the 10th generation, anyone from Moab and Ammon cannot be in the assembly of the Lord. She, she knows that they're going to be outcasts if they come. She says, it's better for you to stay here. That's her reasoning, right? So she thinks she's showing them hesed. Because of her age, because of her wisdom, she's sort of in that stronger position to show kindness to the younger women. And that's what she thinks she's doing. But there's something that happens. Let's keep reading. She kissed them and they wept aloud and said, they said, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even though, uh, even if I thought there were still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they were grown up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. Okay, so what is she talking about here? We're going to see this later in the book of Ruth. We're talking about a practice called leveret marriage. And this goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 25. And you actually see it in Genesis before them, but uh, this is part of the law in Deuteronomy. And God says, look, if, if a woman gets married and her husband dies and she doesn't have a son to take care of her, to provide for her, it's the brother-in-law's responsibility to perform the duties that a husband would perform, let's put it nicely, and provide her with a son, okay, so that she has a, a social security, that she has a way to be provided for. That's the responsibility. It sounds weird to us today, but that was God's way for them uh, to continue on the name of that family because in the, in the Hebrew mindset, if your name, if your family name didn't carry on, like if I didn't have sons, if all I had were daughters and that name didn't carry on, people looked at you like you were cursed because the property that had been passed down to you could only pass down to your sons. So this was a big deal for your name to carry on in the land of the living, in the, the promised land. That was a big deal. And so God had instituted this. And so what Naomi is saying is, look, even if I go find a husband tonight, I'm old. The chances of me having kids is not very good. And the chances of you hanging around for those boys to be old enough for you to marry, you're going to be like 45 and they're going to be like 14. Uh, it's not very good. It's not very good. I'm doing what I think is best for you. Let me send you back. This is the hard choice that I'm making. Let's keep going and see what happens. At this, they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother, mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to her. Verse 15. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back. Going back to her people, to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, do not urge me to leave you or turn back, to, turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. So Ruth makes the hard decision. Ruth says, I'm going to leave 
everything that I've ever known, the only place that I've ever lived, all my friends and my family, and I'm going to go with you because you need me. See, Naomi thinks that because she's older and wiser that she's the one who has the position, uh, the, the better position to be able to say what's right and what's wrong. But Ruth recognizes her weakness in this time of pain. And Ruth says, I'm not going anywhere. You don't realize it, but you need me. I'm making the hard decision. I'm going to follow you. The Olympics are coming up in a, in a couple weeks. And... Um, there's always amazing stories about the athletes that come out during the Olympics. It's, um, I'm not a big fan of the sports and stuff. I don't understand all the Winter Olympics. Grew up in Texas, so I don't understand everything that's going on. Um, we won't go into that. But uh, uh, I, just, I love the stories about the actual athletes. And there's one that I saw this week that I think really demonstrates what it's like to make the hard choice when you have that kind of hesed love for someone. Let's watch this video. What an amazing story. You have twin sisters who are competing in the same event, and it comes down to it, you know, uh, most of these Olympians are pretty young, and they seem like they get younger and younger every time the Olympics come around. So this is probably their last chance to compete. And one sister qualifies, the other is too ill to compete. And the one who qualified says, you need to go. You take my place. I want you to have the good thing. I'm going to support you in this. She made the hard choice for her sister. She demonstrated that kind of hesed towards her sister. And you know what? That requires sacrifice. That requires sacrifice on, on our part. When, when, we, when life gets hard and we have to make the hard choice, a lot of times that requires that we make a sacrifice. My question to you is, what hard choices do you need to make in your life right now? For the sake of relationships, what hard choices do you need to make? Is there something going on in your marriage? Is your life a little bit out of balance? Maybe your life and, and your work schedule are a little bit out of balance, and you need to make the hard decision to say, you know what, I'm going to trust God that, that he has me right where I need to be and that he's given me this many hours a week to work, and the rest of the time I need to invest in my family and in my marriage. And if that means that I don't get the promotion, then I'm okay with that. I'm okay with sacrificing my status to build up my marriage, to build up my kids. Are you okay with that? Are you willing to make that decision? Is, maybe that's where you are. Maybe there's, there's something else. Maybe there's, uh, there's a job that, that's out there that you, know, you say, you know what, we live here, but, but I really feel like God is calling us onto this job. I feel like God is moving us here, and we need to go. We need to obey. We need to make the sacrifices necessary to follow where the Lord is leading. Maybe there, there are people, friends, or neighbors. You want to come home. It's the end of the day. You want to pull in that garage, shut the garage door, and then get out of your car. Go on, get in your, your comfy clothes, and sit on the couch and watch Duck Dynasty. Man, oh man, it's been a long day at work. I just don't want to have to talk to anybody. But maybe love requires that you make the hard choice and go out and sit in the front yard with your neighbors and get to know them and invest in that relationship. Make that hard choice. You're tired. You're drained. 
Love makes the hard choice. Love invests. Love makes sacrifices. The next thing we see, we've already seen it, is that love commits. Love commits. Go back to what Ruth says. Ruth replied, verse 14, first it says that Ruth clung to her. Ruth clings to Naomi. That word clung is the exact same word that's used in Genesis. When God says of Adam and Eve, he says, for this reason, a man shall leave, uh, a woman shall leave her mother and father and cling to her husband. It's that same kind of commitment that's in view here, right? They're not getting married. That's not what it's talking about, but they're just, the, the text is just telling us that Ruth was fully committed to her mother-in-law. And we see that as she goes on in verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Where, where your people will be, my, there I will be. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When, Ruth, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. She says, look, this woman is committed. There's nothing I can do to change her mind. There's no way I'm going to be able to change her mind. She is committed. And here's, here's what we see here. Ruth is saying, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. That's a big step. She's leaving her pagan lifestyle. She's leaving her God and the only gods that she's ever known. And she says, I'm committing to your God. That commitment involves abandonment also, right? How many of you have ever heard this? If you say yes to something, you say no to something else. Anybody ever heard that before? When you say yes to something, you say no to something else, right? And that's what love requires. When life gets hard, we have to make that commitment. We have to be willing to see, God, what do you say is important in my life? What are you calling me to commit to, and what are you calling me to turn away from? When I was in college, a man and I actually got engaged uh, 11 years ago this past January 18th. We'll have have been married um, 10 years coming up this year in May. And uh, after we got engaged, we were juniors in college, and uh, I had known that God had called me to ministry. And uh, I began looking into seminaries. I was challenged by a friend to think outside the Southern Baptist denomination. I was raised Southern Baptist. I went to a Southern Baptist school. And so... There's one Southern Baptist major seminary here in Texas. I figured that would be the next step. And I sit down with my friend who'd been to another seminary. Um, he's about my parents' age, and he goes, I really want to encourage you to, to look outside the Baptist denomination and go somewhere where you're really going to be challenged. He said, think about maybe DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary, or Trinity. And he said, I went to Gordon-Conwell, but, but I don't know if you could make it there. It's, it's the most academically rigorous school uh, that's out there. And I was like, challenge accepted. Gordon Conwell it is. Uh, So I started checking into Gordon Conwell, and I really felt like that's where God was calling me to go. Um, So I came back, and Amanda was aware of it, and she and I had been talking about it, and it came time for us to talk to her parents about it. And that didn't go as well as we'd hoped. And so as we got closer and closer to marriage, and closer and closer to the time when we were, right after we get graduate college, get married, we were going to be moving over 2,000 miles away from our families. My family had time to prepare because they knew that I was going into ministry from the time I was 17. Her family was just getting this news. And so as we got closer and closer to marriage, we, we realized that, that things were getting tough. Things were getting hard. And it, it got um, hard enough at one point that we actually sat down and had a conversation and discussed whether or not it was the wisest thing for us to get married. 
we knew that marriage was hard. Amen? Marriage is hard. It takes work. And we knew that it was going to be even harder if our families were not on board in supporting us. And so we said, look, I'm going into ministry. We both want to honor God. The last thing we want is for something to separate us, for something to come between us. Because when you're serving God, the very first place the enemy is going to try to attack is going to be your marriage most of the time, right? And so we we said, is this the right thing? We started praying about it. uh, and, And we seriously considered maybe it's better that we not get married. We each sought counsel from uh, godly people, and we searched scripture, and we prayed. And I'll never forget the conversation when I knew um, that, that this was not even a question anymore. Amanda came to me one night, and we were talking about it, and she said, when we are married, my commitment is first to God, and because it's to God, my commitment is to you. Wherever you go, I'm going with you. I love my family. I want him to be a part of my life, but I'm committed to you as my husband. And she made that hard decision. And she followed me all the way up to Massachusetts. That was our first first foray into uh, foreign missions, right? Uh, Up there in the Northeast. But she went with me, and she earned her PhD while she was there, put hubby through, uh, PhD, I mean, um, put me through school, and, and it strengthened our marriage. We faced a lot of trials during that time. And I honestly believe that God took us there uh, to draw us closer together. And it was amazing. She made that commitment. She said, I'm going to cling to you as my husband. I want to encourage you in your marriages, in your friendships. Uh, are you clinging to people? Are you committed to the people that are around you? Or do you, do you have throwaway relationships? If you have throwaway relationships, uh, I, I would strongly encourage you to evaluate your love for those people evaluate, is, is that honoring God? Now, there are times when, when you spend a lot of time with someone and you realize that, man, this guy's dragging me down and I, I might need to move on. Uh, there are times that maybe a little bit of separation is a good thing. Um, but I'd really encourage you to ask, God, is this honoring you by the way that I commit to my friendships, to my family, to my marriage? Last thing, let's keep going. So Ruth says, I'm going with you. You're not getting rid of me. They come back to Bethlehem, and everybody in Bethlehem knows that this is Naomi. And they see Naomi, and they're like, oh, this is great. Naomi's back. Everyone's excited. And let's look at what happens here in verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She says, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. That word Almighty is important. Because that word almighty is an indication that Naomi recognizes that God is the one who's doing and acting and moving all of these things in her life. God sent the famine. God is the one who, Naomi earlier says, God is against me. The almighty is against me, right? He took my sons and my husband. She recognizes that God is playing a part in this. That that he is sovereign over everything. And now God has brought me back. But she says, The Almighty has made my life bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant? Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem. Here's the good part. As the barley harvest was beginning. That one phrase, as the barley harvest was beginning, is a little glimmer of hope. And what we see here is that when life gets hard, love hopes. We get a little glimpse of some hope in the life of Ruth and Naomi. 
Things haven't been going their way. Life has been hard. But Naomi even recognizes, even in these hardships, God's in control. And now, from the author of this book, we get a little glimmer of hope that it's the beginning of barley harvest. There's going to be food. And we're going to see as we go through this book that God is going to provide in an amazing way that I don't think either, neither Naomi or Ruth ever expected. But there's that hope. There's that hope. Naomi, <coughs> Naomi says that we left because there was a food famine. And I come back and there's a famine in my soul. There's a famine in my soul. She's bitter. She can't even recognize the blessing that she has in someone like Ruth who's committed to her. She's even having a hard time seeing God's provision of the good thing, of the coming barley harvest, but there's hope. But there's hope. Do you look for hope in hard times? When those, when those hard times come, do you look for that little glimmer of hope that, God, I know you can do something here. I know from my perspective it looks like there's no hope, but God, I know you can do something here. I know my boss is bringing me in his office and yelling at me every single day, but God, I know you can do something here. I know my parents are always on top of me, and it feels like they, they don't understand me, but God, I know there's some hope here. I know that my wife and I are fighting all the time. I know that they we're screaming at the kids, but God, there's a little glimmer of hope. I know that you can still work. When life gets hard, love hopes. When life gets hard, love commits. And when life gets hard, it makes the hard choice. Love makes the hard choice. <clears throat> There's something we haven't talked about yet that uh, came to me this morning as I was reading through my notes. And I just want to mention it real quick. Some of you are here this morning because you've left other churches. Okay? And, and there are good reasons to leave a church, and there are not so good reasons to leave a church. And I just wanna, want you to process this. If you've left a church to be here, are you running from something? Was there something, did maybe the pastor challenge you in a way that you just thought, whoa, I don't, I don't really like being challenged to go out and share my faith, or I don't really like being challenged in this area. And so you decide, I'm going to find a new church. Did, did they change the style of worship and you just say, you know what, that music isn't my style, and, and so you left. Is that really showing commitment to your church family? Because what we say here at River Rock is we don't go to church, we are the church, right? This church is bigger than Sunday morning. There are going to be lots of times you don't like my preaching. I'm going to get tired. I'm not going to do well. You may feel that way this morning. Uh, <clears throat> there are going to be times when we have disagreement. There are going to be hard things that come up in the life of this church. We're just getting started. So far, everything, in my view, has been great. God has done some amazing things, and it's awesome. But we'd be crazy to think that it's always going to stay this way. There are going to be times that we face challenges as a church family, and I want to encourage you, in those hard times as a church, we've got to choose to do the hard thing, which maybe means surrendering our will to the will of someone else. Right? Philippians 2, consider others better than yourselves. Maybe it means that we make the commitment that God... This church, I know they're about evangelism. They're about reaching people far from God. They're about discipleship. I've never done that. It freaks me out. I'm scared, but I'm going to commit to it. I know they're going to push me. They're, someone's going someone's to challenge me in an area that, that I'm not ready to grow yet, but I'm committed to these people because I love them, because I love you, and this is where you've called me. 
So maybe you've come from another church, and, and I'd encourage you, if, um, if God is working in you and saying, maybe you need to go back and talk to the leadership and work things out. Maybe God is calling you here from that church. I don't know. I'd still encourage you, go back to leadership and say, hey, here's where God is calling me, and let, give them the opportunity to send you out in a, with a blessing. Right? Don't run from stuff. Continue to ask, God, where are you calling me to be? How can I honor you through this relationship? We want to be a people that make the hard choice. We want to be a people that make the commitment and the sacrifice that comes along with that. And we want to be a people that always look for the hope because we know how powerful our God is because we serve the Almighty. We don't want to be eating the monkey, right? Let's pray. God, we pray that you would allow us to be a people this week, this month, this year, Day after day, day in, day out, God, would you allow us to be a people who are so committed to each other and to you and to honoring you through our relationships that when life is hard, we would make the hard choice. When life is hard, we would commit to our relationships. And when life is hard, we would look for that little bit of hope that you've placed that's there, Lord, because we know that your love never fails, your love never gives up. We praise you and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.